0: It's Monday, February 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Last week was a rough one for Republicans as they battled for balance within their own party. A fight between more traditional members and the Trump faction. The big questions, what to do with Liz Cheney, who voted to impeach Trump, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has supported conspiracy theories in the past. This week, it will all be about Trump's second impeachment trial as Democrats have accused them of inciting insurrection. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, breaks down what to expect. Next, the pandemic has disrupted our lives in many ways, including our social lives and friendships, and has possibly erased an entire category of friends we once enjoyed. People that may not be in our inner circle, but acquaintances, friends you see while watching sports, even co-workers you don't see as much anymore. Amanda Mull staff writer at the atlantic joins us for why these types of friendships are vital and the deeper appreciation we have for them after the pandemic it's news without the noise let's dive in
1: i remember when my detail came up to me and said mr hoyer we have to get out of here right away and they would just taken uh, speaker pelosi out and as i walked out into the speaker's lobby he said the Capitol has been breached those words were stunning to me. Breached by a foreign enemy? No. Breached by people sent to the Capitol by the President of the United States of America. Joining
0: us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. This past week was quite the week for Republicans, you know, both in the House and the Senate. They had to deal with what to do with Liz Cheney, the third highest ranking Republican in the House. You know, there was a vote to remove her from her leadership position there because she supported the impeachment of former President Donald Trump. And then also Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a first-time freshman Republican in the House, who has a lot of stuff going against her, you know, with QAnon theories, uh, talking about 9-11, school shootings. She was re- uh, receiving a lot of heat from that. But Republicans had to do uh, decide what to do, you know. Was the classical Republican kind of fraction of the party going to take more charge? Or is the Trump wing of the party going to take more charge? So Ginger, tell us what was going on.
1: We had a great piece at NBC News from two of my colleagues, Sahil Kapoor and John Allen, looking at how this fight over Majority Taylor Greene and Liz Cheney really sort of exposed the root of the crisis right now inside the Republican Party. I mean, this is a party that's trying to figure out its future. It was really appended by former President Donald Trump. He sort of broke a lot of the systems and positions that they had held for so long. And really, his critics in the party say promoted people who embraced conspiracy theories, who were willing to repeat unfounded lies about the election. And the party can't decide what does it do now and how does it treat the people who are part of that faction, And so we saw that fight last week. We saw the House Republicans really trying to decide what to do. And you talk about these two big things. Liz Cheney, who the daughter of a former vice president, who really is considered a future leader in the party. Many think she could be the first Republican woman speaker of the House if they take control of the chamber again. And she really surprised a lot of people when she decided to vote to impeach Donald Trump And that surprise included a number of Republicans who thought that she should no longer be in leadership. They voted. It was a secret ballot, that vote that they took. And of the Republicans, 141 sided with Cheney. 145 compared to 61 who voted against her. And really, a lot of people are saying that secret ballot tally shows just how tired some Republicans are of Donald Trump. They wouldn't vote to impeach him. Only 10 Republicans did. But 145 of them were okay that one of their leaders did. And then on the other hand was this green fight. This is a woman who got elected to Congress for the first time from Georgia. And there's all these videos that are on the internet of her really repeating conspiracy theories. And she has said not quite that she was sorry for them, but she now realizes that some of them were wrong. She said that on the house floor on Thursday. But then again, a deep division of Republicans here, many who would rather her not be <laughs> the face of their party, yeah. who want to move on, who'd think that she's maybe doing some harm to their party. A lot of them, however, who think that Democrats shouldn't be stripping her of her committee seats that that's the wrong process to go about this but we saw Mitch McConnell do a really unusual move for him getting involved in a in a house fight as the Senate Republican leader criticizing uh, not by name but you know clearly criticizing green and this is really just examples of where the party is trying to sort out what they do now. And it's also clear that they don't really have an answer. They're not really sure. and I think we're going to see a power struggle, not just in the next year, but really over the next four years until they nominate someone else to run for president right. in 2024.
0: Yeah. And Marjorie Taylor, Green to your point, is becoming more of a household name. There was just a political morning consult poll that shows that, you know, more people uh, know her name, know about her and have opinions about her. One of the things kind of the way you're talking about how really nobody has the answer yet. There was a major Republican donor who was talking about all this and says, you know, the base really isn't there yet on tossing President Trump overboard. You know, and the Republican Party is no longer run by elites in Washington. It's all these grassroots people kind of like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And they're listening to those people. You know, the the public is listening to those people, not the old Republican Party. This is what they have to fight with, you know. And and, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the leader in in the House for the Republicans, he says he wants a big tent. So obviously you don't want to alienate. That's just a delicate balance that they're going through now. But, you know, really every party kind of goes through that after they lose power.
1: We talked to a strategist who said, Look, Kevin McCarthy's goal is to win within his Republican caucus, right? Mitch McConnell wants to win the majority using, you know, 50 and a majority of the 50 states to get enough senators. So they have slightly different goals, but I think you're right. There's this division within the Republican Party, and McCarthy is trying to keep all of the pieces happy. And it's a very difficult task, especially when you consider how far apart some of them are.
0: The big news this week is the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial for President Trump. We've already seen a bunch of legal filings from both sides on how they want to play this. Uh, you know, Democrats are saying that the president is singularly responsible for this. He incited the insurrection that happened at the Capitol building. The Republicans, for their part, want to uh, say that. This is uh, about the First Amendment, and the president was just speaking his opinion on this. It doesn't really seem like he will be convicted. There was already 45 senators that said they they don't think that this trial should go forward. Senators could consider censuring the president in hopes that maybe he doesn't run again. So this is kind of what we're playing with for this week.
1: So the impeachment trial is scheduled to kick off Monday afternoon. we're going to hear Democrats try to lay their case out. I would be expecting to see visuals, right? We understand that the Democrats have brought in experts at making trial videos to try to sort of piece together. None of this will be much of a surprise. You know, the last impeachment trial, we were dealing with a phone call that none of us heard that wasn't recorded, that there were descriptions of, but we couldn't listen to. Now we're talking about speeches and a mob and a riot that most of us watched on television yeah. uh, or that in my case, I was were inside there. the building, <laughs> right? So as were the senators who are going to be experiencing this. So they're going to be laying out, I think, a timeline. And as you said, the former president's attorney is trying to argue uh, sort of on the rules that this is not constitutional, that you can't go after a former president and that his speech should be protected.
0: GOP senators don't want any of the classic, the election was stolen stuff to be brought up in this. You know, they want to kind of debate it on the constitutionality of it. He's out of office already. There's no need to go through this procedure. In Trump's legal briefings, they've already said, you know, we deny that he did this. He didn't incite the insurrection. That's kind of how it's going there. And Uh, As I mentioned before, you know, other senators are considering censuring the president. That's the big hope that they, you know, maybe he doesn't run again. And maybe for the Republican Party, that might be a benefit, too, if they can be done with that part of it. But as we were just talking about with the fight that they were having within their party, who knows if they're ready to even do that.
1: Last week, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, a Democrat, said that he didn't file his resolution to censure Trump because he didn't think it had enough support. So at this point, they're not even putting a bill forward. They're not even filing one because they're afraid they don't have enough support. But I do think that there are Republicans, again, like we saw in the House, like if they could vote by secret ballot, we would be seeing a bit of a different position here, But They can't. They have to put their name on a a vote. And for that reason, one of my colleagues likes to describe it as the escape hatch. They're going to take the constitutional (laughs) escape hatch so that they don't have to say how they think about what Trump did and said that day.
0: Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks
1: for
2: having me. I miss seeing the bartenders that I saw every weekend. I miss seeing lots of people who I know by first name or who I know by sight, but whose you know, social media information I don't have. And it's just sort of snowballed from there. And I realized that this was something that a lot of other people were experiencing too.
0: Joining us now is Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you for having me. We're going to be going back and looking at coronavirus, the pandemic, kind of the big year that we all shut down for many years to come, kind of how it affected everything really. You know, it's been the big disruptor of our lives when it comes to health, when it comes to the economy, and when it comes to our social lives. And that's one of the interesting parts of it is how our social lives have changed and friendships in particular. Amanda, you looked into how maybe whole... Categories of friendships have been erased throughout this these closures and shutdowns. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this is something
2: that I had noticed pretty early on in the pandemic, but I sort of chopped it up to the fact that I am a really extroverted, social, chatty person. I love to chat with people. People who work at the coffee shop I go to and the UPS guy who always comes to my building and things like that. I just like to talk. So I I noticed that I was missing all of these like little incidental interactions pretty early, but, but I didn't know if that was something that people who aren't as social as I am were feeling. So as time wore on, I noticed more and more types of people I was missing out on and just how bummed out I felt about it all the time and eventually I realized while watching a Netflix show in which one of the first scenes of the series is the main character meeting her boyfriend at a bar while everybody's watching baseball and I just thought about watching football in a bar the <laughs> right. bar that I go, go to every fall weekend normally and realized that I just really missed being around a bunch of like sort of familiar people all doing the same thing at the same time I missed seeing the bartenders that I saw every weekend I missed seeing lots of people who I know by first name or who I know by sight, but who's, you know social media information I don't have. And it's just sort of snowballed from there. And I realized that this was something that a lot of other people were experiencing too.
0: We have our inner circle and we know those people and we try to keep in contact with them as much as possible. But this kind of outer circle, these people that also enrich our lives in a lot of different ways, they can be just as important as our main relationships. And sociology, I like the way you, you mentioned this, doesn't really have a name for this but they are called weak ties. So this is anything from acquaintances as you were mentioning people in the bars, all these other people and I'm with you on that front. I miss those people.
2: I think one of the reasons that people have had a, such a difficult time articulating this sense of loss that they have over these people in their lives is that we don't really have language in the US to talk about all of these different types of connections. We have the word friend and we have the word acquaintance, but there's just not like a rich language around all the people that matter in your life. At first, I felt a little bit selfish because I have been really lucky. I have a lot of close friends within a couple blocks of my apartment. I have been seeing them throughout the situation in safe ways. We have access to resources to do that. So... And I felt a little bit like I was being greedy by missing all of these other people, but I started to look into the sociology of it. And we need all of these different
0: types of ties and relationships and interactions in order to keep us mentally and physically healthy. This has kind of far-reaching effects. It's not just people at the bar and all that. It crawls into work life, working from home life, all these different types of friends and casual encounters that we would have would shape you kind of bring some little joy to your life. But these are different. Talk about this in the context of uh, the workplace now, because that's another big disruptor we've been dealing with.
2: One of the first ways that it occurred to me that this might harm people in the long term in some way, or at least change their lives in some way in the long term is at work. Offices are built environments meant to encourage certain type of behaviors, and often those behaviors are co-workers getting together and chatting for a few minutes in the communal kitchen, people collaborating with each other on a project, in a conference room, things like that. Just being able to look across the table in a meeting and see someone else having the same reaction to something that you're having. All of those little interactions, and then being able to run and get a, a cup of coffee with somebody spur of the moment because you run into, ran into them in the hallway... Those interactions make somebody part of a workplace, make somebody part of an organization. Especially when you're young or when you're new to a job, having those little interactions help you integrate into the structure of the place that you are. If you can't get integrated into that type of structure, then you have a hard time making a name for yourself, becoming a valued coworker, things like that. And it also hurts collaboration. I talked to one researcher about some stuff he had found about conversational reciprocity and... What we need in the workplace, especially when one person is instructing another person on how to do something, is unstructured time for the person who is doing the task to put in their two cents, to uh, become an equal part of the conversation with with their boss, essentially. And on Zoom and things like that, you lose those opportunities because so many of these digital interactions are very structured and everybody knows going into them who is supposed to talk and when and about what and for how long.
0: On the workplace front, I've definitely noticed that myself firsthand where a lot of people, I work at a radio station, right? So a lot of people are working from home right now. We've had to hire on a few new people as well. And I always find myself telling them, it's not normally like this. There's a lot more people. There's a lot more interaction. Them starting out, they don't know any of the other departments, uh, people in other departments. You know, it's very isolated in a sense where the programming side of things, we're just kind of doing our own thing. But it's just interesting how how it does shape these workplace relationships as well. It's just so important. You you spoke to somebody, an expert that studies uh, friendships, and they said many different kinds of relationships are important. Man does not thrive on close friendships alone. And it's so true. These kind of, all these other people really round out our days. You mentioned something too about kind of... Uh, Isolation in your article. When we don't have these other types of friendships and interactions, too, it can push you further into isolation and in our bubbles and things that we see how these conspiracy theories start to flourish because we're pushed into isolation and these tinier bubbles.
2: One of the things that really struck me as I was doing the research on this topic and talking to these experts is that the weak ties in our lives, the people on the periphery of our social lives uh, are a useful grounding resource. They they keep us tied to our communities, to the physical world, to the people around us, to the cities we live in. And when you lose those people, a lot of people lose a really meaningful source of a source of support, source of comfort, source of like a shared understanding of the world around you. So people go online looking for that. There are healthy ways to find that online. You might find a forum that's all about knitting or a forum that's all about baseball or whatever it is that your interest is. Or if you end up on the wrong side of the algorithm, you might end up in QAnon or you might end up uh, in an extremist Facebook group or something like that. Because what those groups offer and what what they prey on in people is people looking for a sense of certainty, people looking for an order to the world, an understanding of the forces that are acting on them and what they can do about it when you lose all your social ties because of a long-term disaster like the pandemic that we're in those things become even more seductive to people which is i think a big reason that we've seen an acceleration in those types of groups on the internet in the past year
0: according to some of the experts you spoke to though all is not lost these relationships these weak ties so to speak can be built up back again and we're seeing vaccines roll out we're hoping obviously Things will get back to normal soon. And these are the kind of things that can pick up pretty quickly. I, I, I did like the way, you know, people have been saying that there could be a roaring 2020s similar to what happened after 1918 and the flu pandemic back then. And now we have this better understanding how of how important these relationships are to us.
2: One of the big upsides that we have in front of us is that weak ties are Definitionally, low-pressure relationships. So these are not generally people who are going to be offended that you didn't text them to keep up during the pandemic. These are not people who you're turning down Zoom invites from. These are people that once you see them again and, and once you both confirm you're still there and still happy to be there things should go in those relationships back to largely normal. And I think that people will be really, really happy to see everybody and perhaps bring with that a an understanding of what all of the people around us mean to our lives, not just necessarily our very close friends and people who are like us in you know socioeconomic ways that we would spend intentional time with, but the people who work at the grocery store, your barista at the coffee shop, people who work and exist in, in ways in our lives that our culture doesn't always value. I think that understanding all that we lost when we lost them as part of our everyday lives, could be a step towards revaluing them in the future and understanding how much people who performed labor like that and who play roles like that really matter in a society and to ourselves as individuals.
0: Amanda Mole, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.